Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Uh, moving on then to uh, the Christian hermeneutic. And I, one thing I really like about your book, it's so carefully laid out. So you have the prophetic and the apostolic and then the Christian uh, hermeneutic. So in your book, you write another quote here, the way the biblical writers use the Bible is the crux interpretum, the key issue in answering how we have a Christian or biblical hermeneutic. And then you go on to say, how can we genuinely claim to have a hermeneutic based on the scripture, which ignores the scriptures where the biblical writers interpreted previous revelation? A hermeneutic that does not take all scripture into account is not a biblical hermeneutic. Um, I think that's very bold. I think very uh, uh, appropriate uh, to uh, to call uh, contemporary herm- uh, interpreters to account. So, uh, in light of that, can you please flesh out for us what a proper Christian hermeneutic looks like? So, when we think about a Christian hermeneutic, and we're talking here about underlying methodology and an underlying approach, and and again, with that quote that you read, uh, I try not to shy away from those difficult texts in the book, you know, whether that be Matthew's use of Hosea 11, 1, mm-hmm. or Christ as rock in 1 Corinthians 10, or, mm-hmm. or a lot of other passages. The book does outline how to go through them. And in fact, I would just say simply it, all those supposed problem passages actually demonstrate the precision of the apostles' hermeneutic even more. Uh, just a simple way to put it with even Hosea 11, 1. Why does Matthew quote from Hosea and not the book of Exodus? Why, why, why the most convenient text to quote if, if that's the only comparison Matthew is trying to draw, a superficial connection with the Exodus, is to go back to Exodus chapter 4, mm-hmm. where the same language is employed. That would be the simplest way to do it. But rather, Matthew wants to use and talk about the Exodus the way Hosea talked about it which actually accentuates how contextual and how precise he is. He will cite a lesser known text, you mm-hmm. could say, to because he wants to speak of this moment the way Hosea did. And, and that kind of hermeneutic that emphasizes context, that is what we might call traditionally literal, grammatical, historical. It prizes exactly what the author meant, not just what a text could mean, not just what a reader says it is, not just what a community establishes what is acceptable, but rather what the author meant, the highest criteria of proof established by grammar, not just by arbitrary ideas that we read into a text, but by the very structure of grammar articulated in the original languages and based upon the facts of history. That is what the biblical writers do. That is the world of interpretation that they engage in. That's why they're so precise, even with the term, whether that be vine or rest or eagle, that is why they engage in history, even write the Bible as history, because they have that hermeneutical approach. And that is the underlying methodology that we have. And, and what that methodology does is it amplifies authorial intent. And how that leads to theology is because since the biblical writers themselves are theologians, and that is their intent, and they write that way, and they even map out how they come up with this theology or derive or articulate this theology, that 
And when we derive their intent through this method that they themselves prescribed and think their thoughts after them, we will have theology because that's what they're writing. And so there is continuity then between the prophetic hermeneutic, the apostolic hermeneutic, and Christian hermeneutic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that's the reason why we can be confident that this approach isn't because of enlightenment rationalism, as some people say, or because it just makes sense, even if it may not make sense to others. This is a method, whether it makes sense to you or not, or whether you have philosophical bias against it or not, this is the method God prescribes for his word, because it's embedded in the word of God. It is the way they read, the way they wrote, and therefore the way they expect us to read them. Terrific. Well, uh, let's move from hermeneutics without leaving hermeneutics behind, but let's transition to talk a bit more about biblical theology, which was already implicit in in, in, in our previous podcast. But uh, you use the term intertextuality, uh, I think, throughout your volume. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners what this term typically typically means and how you use it? So intertextuality is a broad literary term. It, it, is, it has been used by deconstructionists like Christiva and others to try to break down texts into just a whole host of ideas that can be read from other texts, other experiences. It, it just grabs all these things and puts them together. And that deconstructs a level of authority because it's no longer the author in control. That it rather it is the sum of all kinds of experiences and written works and things. And, and that is how the term can be used uh, in the literary world. However, there is a notion of what might be called classic intertextuality, which strictly denotes how texts use text, how texts refer to text, perhaps not even in uh, a direct way, but rather there is a level of influence, there is a level of incorporation, there is a variety of relationships of implication that can happen in that, and intertextuality can refer to that. And my specific kind of slice or perspective of intertextuality that I define in the book centers around authorial intent. It centers around how an author will pull, whether that be direct exegesis of a text or allusion to a, a set of texts in order to inform the reader and anchor the reader in what this author is communicating to us under the inspiration of the Spirit. That interconnectivity of the scripture and the scriptural text is what I'm deeming as intertextuality. Now, related to that, there's another set of terms that you utilize as well, um, authorial logic or apostolic logic. Um, could you define and explain those terms for our listeners as well? So authorial logic is simply put the rationale of an author and how they are thinking through how to apply a text. So how do we know that Paul was applying a text in a certain way? How, how do we know how they're building an argument? How do we know that the Old Testament writer, say a narrative writer, is condemning a certain act or are affirming a certain act? What is their perspective? What is their logic in all of this? Well, I would say that as opposed to something arbitrary where we're having to make up Paul's argument for him or make up why the narrative sees a certain action positively or negatively. Rather, that logic is objectively stated in the intertextuality of Scripture. 
by appealing to certain texts or sets of texts, train of thought, chains of texts. The author is saying, if you understand these five texts or these three texts or even this other text, then you know what I'm thinking about this specific action or this specific argument. We don't have to make up subjectively the rationale of the biblical writers. Rather, we see it objectively as they are anchoring their understanding of certain issues and what is driving them in other cross-references, for lack of a better way of putting it, in Scripture. And that's what we're talking about with authorial logic. Excellent. Um, you also launched a critique of uh, what's been called trajectory hermeneutic toward the end of your book, and uh, I deeply resonate with that. I've long felt that there's some deep-seated issue with this kind of hermeneutic. Can you briefly uh, summarize the trajectory hermeneutic and, and articulate what's so, so precarious about that particular way of reading Scripture? So in some, the trajectory hermeneutic is essentially what people imagining what the author would say. Oh, well, given the new evidence nowadays, they would, they would argue, Paul or Peter or Jesus would say, you know, women can preach in churches or LGBTQ is uh -huh. okay, or maybe the way we raise our children should change or, or the way that the New Testament articulates certain commands. Well, we don't have to live under them anymore because if we understand the trajectory uh -huh. of these ideas, then it would have changed and evolved into our time period. And I would contend that actually understanding authorial logic, like we just mentioned, mm -hmm. shows that that kind of thinking is incorrect. That the authors, they their way of thinking is not a trajectory that their commands are going to evolve. Rather, their understanding is on, in redemptive history, these commands are binding for the church for all time. That these commands actually are bringing us back to Eden, not some nebulous alternative paradise that that trajectory hermeneuticians are trying to are trying to argue for. And they are showing also, I mean, and the biblical writers are showing that they are anchoring their ideas not in some projected reality in the future, but actually in things in the past. And that they're trying to get back to what God originally intended and what the scriptures have always said. And and I guess you could almost put it in this way that in any given text, it has a range of implications. We recognize that. That's where the motto, one meaning but many applications comes from. And we can demonstrate that even the Bible, even in its laws, it sets up one command, but there is a precept around it. There's a principle that has many, many implications. We recognize that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have to also recognize that not every implication, even if logical, is valid per the author's intent. Uh, just a simple, silly example. If mm -hmm. I took my wife out to dinner and she asked me, am I enjoying this meal? And I said, yes, it's wonderful. I can't wait to do this again with you. For her to say in response to that, well, then you don't like my cooking. Well, that's not that's not what I meant by that, for sure. If, if I'm going to be a godly husband, I, I know I love my wife's cooking and I love my wife. And, and that was outside of the range uh -huh. of implications and applications of my statements. In, in that way, 
what the trajectory hermeneutic is doing, it is proposing applications outside of the original intended significance and implication that the biblical author mandated. The biblical author gave us a command, love one another, raise your children in a certain way. Uh-huh. Here's how you do church. And there can be a lot of different ways that that can be done, but you have to do that command. It's never in their intent to say, well, I'm giving you this command, but this command will be superseded by other commands later on that actually speak to the contrary. There is no language of that whatsoever. So they have gone outside of the bounds of significance. I think that's very helpful. Um, in the final chapter of your book, uh, you also coined the term hermeneutics of surrender. Uh, can you explain that? Yeah, hermeneutics of surrender really denotes that we have no latitude hermeneutically. We have no latitude to make up our hermeneutic because the prophets and apostles, God has used them under inspiration to establish it. So we don't have a say in how we come up with our hermeneutic. And as a result of that, because that hermeneutic honors God's word and honors what he has said and honors the author's intent, that means we have lost all right to speak as if our words can control what the agenda and implications of scripture mean. We don't control the main point of a text, the author does. We don't Mm -hmm. control the structure of a text, the author does. We don't control even the implications or range of implications of a text, the author does. We have to surrender to all of those things. That's why I would say that the predominant hermeneutical language of the Old Testament is listen. Because when you listen to somebody, you don't talk. And that really is a hermeneutic of surrender. When we stop trying to speak over scripture or override scripture with our ideas, but instead we listen to it. And all we do then is obey it because that is what God's word demands, even on a hermeneutical level. Well, that would be a great way to end our podcast on hermeneutics and biblical theology. But I have one more question, some sort of a, bonus question, if you will, because one of the questions that um, as a teacher, I often get asked by my students increasingly, actually, is they're wondering what is the relationship between hermeneutics and biblical theology? In other words, in what ways uh, is there a connection between the way we exegete the text or the rules or the principles we, we use to do that on the one hand, and the way we engage in in doing biblical theology. I'd love to hear your answer to that. Yeah, I would say that there's a kind of a give and take relationship between biblical theology and hermeneutics. And on one hand, the the way biblical theology works is dictated by hermeneutics. It is it is dictated by hermeneutics. On the other hand, it is actually the hermeneutics is actually what grounds biblical theology. So some people wonder, how do we know that this whole notion of biblical theology, however people want to define it, whether that be uh, the biblical author and his own theology or interconnected texts that form theological themes in the scripture, how do we know that's even warranted? And I would say, on a hermeneutical level, when we understand we're about authorial intent and that the author's intent is sophisticated and that they are in their own intent pulling texts together, piecing things together to explain theologically truths under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, well, that is the grounds for why we have biblical theology. That is why we can say with confidence, yes, biblical theology in the scriptures is legitimate because it is not 
us making this up. It is us following what the biblical writers have done. But on the other hand, Mm -hmm. that's the control of biblical theology. So biblical theology cannot be an exercise where we are just making up the connections or thinking, oh, this is a nice association. I think it's valid. So it is. The the burden of proof is higher for biblical theology than that because Mm -hmm. it goes back to hermeneutics and exegesis. And the assumption from that and what we derive from that, which is that the biblical writers themselves are theologians. We don't have to make up a new theology. We just have to articulate what they were doing, and that is theology, and that is God's theology for us, and that is all sufficient and all deep and profound and should elicit our worship. And so the relationship in some between biblical theology and hermeneutics is that hermeneutics says, yes, you can do biblical theology, but at the same time, and for that very reason, hermeneutics says, this is how you have to do that biblical theology. Uh Uh You don't make up your own connections. Follow what the biblical writers were doing, articulate what they were doing, and that will give us biblical theology. Well, I'll certainly try to take that to heart in my own future uh, biblical theological work. And I, I hope that um, a lot of people are listening to your caution and your admonition uh, who are engaged in biblical theology, because if I understood you correctly, what you're saying is just like we need to practice a hermeneutic of surrender when it comes to exegesis of passages and our own hermeneutics, we need to practice that same hermeneutics of surrender when it comes to doing biblical theology. Amen. Amen. Well, we had a previous podcast where we actually tried to define um, biblical theology along similar lines, mm-hmm. the theology of the biblical writers. So we definitely appreciate your comments on that and uh, appreciate your work, especially we would direct our listeners to interact with uh, the hermeneutics of the biblical writers. And uh, we're just grateful for your time and joining us today at this podcast. It is a joy for me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.